0: and welcome to the pack heavy podcast now this podcast is for anyone who works in the hospitality and food manufacturing industries who use flexible packaging to get their products to market featuring interviews with guests who have traveled the path that you're on so that you can learn from their successes and failures and engage in the mindset required to go all in on your vision i call this mindset the pack heavy mentality and it's primarily driven by deliberate action and extreme organization. You gather market intelligence, put a strong plan in place, organize the appropriate resources, and then confidently test your hypothesis against reality. So if you're ready to pack heavy on your vision, you're in the right place, and I'm excited to have you here. Good morning, and welcome to episode 51, where today I'm joined by Guy Dean, who is the president and general manager at Organic Ocean Seafood. Operating out of Fisherman's Wharf, False Creek, and the fishing docks in Steveson, BC, Organic Ocean is a direct from the source seafood supply that primarily offers Pacific Northwest seafood caught from either their own fleet or partner vessels. They sell to many high-end restaurants within North America and Asia, either direct or through a small premium distributor network. Sparked by the pandemic in April 2020, Organic Ocean launched their own online Organic Ocean at Home program, delivering fresh seafood to homes in and around the greater Vancouver area. In early 2021, the program expanded and they extended their reach to include Quebec and every province west of Quebec through the launch of an overnight next day delivery service. We actually chat about this uh, quite extensively with Guy and I think there's a lot to be learned um, during that part of the conversation. Guy himself graduated from the University of BC with a degree in marine zoology and has been involved in the seafood industry for well over 30 years in many roles including farmer, harvester, fisher, processor and distributor. He is passionate about supporting and promoting the consumption of sustainable seafood and particularly the long-term viability of the seafood industry. Before we do kick off into the conversation though, like usual, every week, I'd just like to take a couple of minutes to highlight our show sponsors, Foodpack and Brad Bodnichuk. So first off the rank, we've got food pack. And I've said it before and I'll say it again, but your packaging is the first and most meaningful interaction that your consumer will most likely have with your product. So at Food Pack, we focus exclusively on what your vision and needs are and work hard to deliver on a flexible packaging solution that serves its purpose properly at the right price. So if you're looking to get into the market for the first time with a stock pouch or would like to assess your existing program, I recommend that you get in touch with me directly by emailing me at Hayden at foodpack, and that's pack with a K.ca or by calling me on 604 360 6790. Now, How serious are you in the pursuit of squeezing every last drop of your potential into whatever it is that you're passionate about in life? So be it your career or relationship or even your relationship with yourself. Well, 12 months ago, I started working with a coach with the aim of gaining a real clear vision for my life and the sort of fundamentals of long-term and short-term goals. Not only that, but the mindset needed to achieve those goals and the systems and process to support it all, like daily and weekly and monthly structures that really need to be in place to see progress and success in your vision. So I would highly recommend you reach out to Brad Bodnachuk for a free 45-minute strategy session by visiting the link in the show notes. Brad is an absolute world-class coach and if you're willing to push yourself in ways that you didn't even know were possible you're crazy not to go and have that 45-minute chat with Brad and take it from
1: there. Guy
0: welcome to the show.
1: Thanks Hayden nice to be here.
0: Yeah good to have you here as well. Um, I feel really fortunate to have been introduced to you obviously uh, Bruce Wallinger who I had on the show a few weeks ago and you know we discussed the seaweed industry he uh he was um, kind enough to introduce the two of us, so thanks, Bruce, and a shout out to Bruce for the intro.
1: Yeah, it's great. I've known Bruce for a long time.
0: Have you obviously from the industry?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, you know, he was um, a value-added uh, processor before that. We uh, we did a lot of work together. I mean, I've been in this industry for a long time, so I know a lot of people.
0: Yeah, yeah, I did see that. I had um, done some research on you. And uh, obviously, yeah, multiple reasons as to why I'm excited to talk to you today. But the real reason I was thank excited you. to talk to you is, yeah, you're welcome. Um, You've been in the industry for well over 30 years, and you seem to have been in literally every facet of the industry, whether it's from, you know, yeah. farming and harvesting, fishing, processing, distributor, you name it, you've been involved. And I thought, well, what better person to have on the show uh, to shine some light on the um the fishing and seafood processing industry than than you?
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I. I have done a lot of uh, different roles that so that that's been a key component of, of me. It's always trying to grow and trying to learn uh, different facets of the industry.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, at what age did you get in? Let's go right back to the start.
1: Well, I, uh, I mean, I, I even uh, worked on a fishing vessel during uh, high school, yeah. um, but uh, you know, in this in the summertime, but um, I went to university, went to UBC, studied mm-hmm. marine zoology, um, you know, I've always been passionate about the oceans uh, since I was a young kid. Yeah. Uh, and the goal was never really to work in the seafood industry. But I remember at my graduation, uh, university graduation, the dean got up and he said, "Well, you know, you should be very proud to know that you uh, uh, are graduating from one of the top universities for marine zoology in the world." Uh, the downside is there are no jobs out there so (laughs) so uh you know quickly kind of pivoted and um, uh, my first job was right after university was working on a salmon farm and this was way back before you know uh, salmon farming was was uh, controlled by large uh, Norwegian companies or conglomerates or Japanese companies um it was a mom and pop shop and we we honestly thought at the time that we were going to change the world and feed the masses and it was really a hippie I- ideology but um that's that's how we started
0: right where was that here on the west coast
1: yeah on the west coast of vancouver island called right. a small little uh place called winter harbor
0: right are you from the island are you
1: yeah i'm i'm from uh courtney actually
0: ah oh, i've been there Yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 nice part
0: of the world. A lot of people are great moving to the island from here at the moment.
1: they are. It's a great place and great place to grow up, too. yeah.
0: yeah, I always love getting across there too. So yeah. um, and I also see that you know you've actually worked in Japan uh, in yes. a, as a commercial diver, or were you a commercial diver in Australia?
1: No, i was uh, I, I became a diver actually to work on the um, to work on, on at the salmon farm, yeah, or, uh, or prior to that. yeah um but when i then i um i did that for you know i was working on the salmon farm for a couple years and then i um um you know i was getting antsy and wanted to travel i was still young uh i got an offer to become to uh, be a uh, english instructor in in japan and i went over there and i realized after my first week that i didn't know how to teach english so um i instantly uh searched out uh a dive shop that was there and the interesting thing about japan is uh recreational diving um is, you know like patty or or uh, those certifications uh requires if you want to dive in japan you require uh permission from the fisherman's co-op that controls that the coastline and so because of that you also almost like pro bono you would Uh, offer your services commercial services to them so i became a dive instructor and then i got my commercial diving license and um was also trained by the japanese coast guard to for search and recovery for boats that went down or people that went missing yeah um yeah and so it was a great opportunity
0: yeah yeah and do you still get out and dive these days like it's something that you still love to do or
1: i i'm getting old and i hate the cold water so <laughs> I, I only dive yeah. when in in the warm water when we're on vacation yeah so, fair
0: enough i understand that yeah. for sure and uh and you got yourself across to australia as well
1: yeah um i again been traveling all over the world that's um especially when i was young that's been yeah. a passion but yeah. uh yeah um i've been to australia a couple of times actually uh, yeah um, you know, hiked all over the country, basically.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's great. Let's just get back to Japan. So obviously yep. Japan heavily involved in the, you know, the fishing and the seafood industry, uh, whether it's, you know, high grade sashimi or, uh, or tuna as well. And I've seen, there are those huge markets in, uh, Tokyo, uh, yeah, where they, yeah, they haul in those humongous tunas and they're worth yep. thousands and thousands of dollars. Did you get there yourself?
1: Yeah. I've, I've been to so, um, so, when I, I decided it was time, so I lived in Japan for seven years, and I decided it was time to come back to Canada. Mm. Um, I wanted to use my knowledge of Japanese and my love of the seafood industry, or the you know um, the ocean, and that it, that actually became sales. Sales went into seafood sales, so that's right. how I really got into that side of the business. Okay. Um, so I I came back and I I searched out for uh, companies that um you know we're selling to japan selling seafood to japan and back then there were a lot of companies that were selling seafood to japan whether mm-hmm. it's herring row or sam uh, salmon or uh black cod um just to name a few um and so yeah anyway when i came back was working for one of those uh companies and ended up um you know and then because of that you would travel to japan pretty consistently at least once a year if not a couple times a year and most of your customers were around that area the tsukiji market that were um that you would do business with
0: Mm, yeah i can imagine it would have been an incredible atmosphere you know being in an environment like that
1: yeah no really cool really really cool especially you know if you you if you were um with the right people typically they didn't let a lot of foreigners go into those auctions and and stuff but if you were with the right people you you'd be allowed to go in which was always fun
0: i was watching a a documentary a long long time ago and it was about that market and it was about the export of um of seafood around the world and how it's really you know the advent of the um of the jet and um Mm -hmm. and the airliners that yeah. really opened up the market to the world because they would be, you know they were able to fly fresh seafood from those markets in Japan to New York and restaurants straight into New York right. sort of really changed the sort of the landscape of the economy yeah, and yeah. um and commerce in general it's it's pretty cool
1: yeah it is yeah and same um you know the internet has really changed uh, seafood as well you yeah. know that um access to you know com- commodity pricing and all that which was mm-hmm. never there before has yeah. really changed the marketplace
0: That's cool. So the seafood industry, obviously, you know, just being a regular everyday consumer, I feel as if I've already got an awareness of sort of what sustainability means in this sort of space. You know, you just have to pick up a a can of tuna and, you know, you've already got the dolphin Friendly logo on it. So you're already aware that there's a lot going on. And then there are documentaries on Netflix around, you know, those huge big trawlers that, you know, rake the bottom of the ocean and just bring up everything. And, you know, there's a lot of activism in the industry and, you know, out there as well. And, uh, and when I was reading up on you, I see that sustainability is something that's near and dear to you and something that you've incorporated into all of the businesses that you've worked in. So I wanted to touch on that with you today. Because I think that's a very important conversation, especially for the listeners out there who are, you know, small to medium sized business owners. Um, You know, they may be a food processor, and they're actually using an ingredient um, in their product. It may be a seafood ingredient, and they want to be obviously sourcing um, sustainable and ethical um, uh, produce or ingredients for their products. And I think the other great conversation that you and I can have is around how to build sort of those sustainability pillars um, into their business from an early, um, from early beginnings, especially um, into the DNA of um, the culture within the organization, because I know that that's been a key part to your success um, in the business world. Um, so let's sort of go right back to the start. i um Obviously, you came from Albion, which is a huge organization. And then uh, you said a little over two years ago, you started working at Organic Ocean where you are right now. And um, and at the time, I saw I actually found an article um, by Seafood Sauce. It was Cliff White who was interviewing you. And he asked you a really great question. And I think it could be a really good time to ask you the question now, two years later down the road. And he said, do you think the global seafood sustainability movement, which you've played a major role in advancing, is making enough progress? What are the major roadblocks and what do you see as some of its biggest successes?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the, um, I think the biggest challenge is the seafood industry as a whole is quite ant, antiquated. antiquated yep. And um, and there's a lot of infighting within the industry. Hmm. Um, fresh versus frozen, farm versus wild, you know, and nope. And and rather than fight internally, we should be we should be coming together as a group in a pre-competitive fashion to challenge to tackle all those challenges that you talked about on like Seaspiracy that brought up uh, on Netflix. So um, so i think and and we are moving in that direction and and it's positive it's certainly not happening at the pace i'd like to see it happen mm-hmm. um but there are a lot of collaborations now and and various organizations that are coming together and um you know competitors that are still coming together and working together to uh tackle some of the challenges that we see in the industry so from a positive perspective i think that um i'm really uh i really think that that's the right direction and and uh we're seeing those changes but as as i said um it's not happening as fast as i certainly like to see you know some of the things that were brought up whether it's illegal unreported unregulated fishing uh that were brought up on those documentaries Mm -hmm. or uh um forced labor uh or um overfishing um these are none of these are new to the industry. We've known about them for you know 15, 20 years mm. and we've been trying to tackle them for that long. Um, but the only way, as I said, we're going to be able to tackle them is if we come together and work together even if we're competitors and uh, and find and find solutions to those challenges.
0: Mm. I mean sustainability in general is a really broad term. So when we're sort of discussing sustainability through the lens of the seafood industry, there seem to be sort of three components and they're listed on your website where I pulled them from. So there's economic, social and environmental sort of they're the three key um, components. Where do you sort of start like in the, in the conversation around sustainability in the industry?
1: Well, I I mean, I think first, I think sustainability is probably an overused word. Mm. Um, And uh, I don't know if people really, totally uh, understand what sustainability is um there's a lot of greenwashing that continues to go on but um it's it's a good question i mean a long uh you know 15 20 uh, 15 10 to 15 years ago um my philosophy has changed over time of what mm. sustainability is and um 10 or 15 years ago too often we, we associate sustainability with just our impact on the environment yeah and um but what we're um what we're finding more and more is that there's a socioeconomic issue that is really the basis of why we're having environmental issues in the first place why do why do we overfish why do we fish illegally in in areas that we're not supposed to fish why are we you know shark uh, uh, finning sharks and uh and usually it's because we're working in developing countries that Mm -hmm. don't have uh, can't afford uh decent livelihoods and they fish and they do these things in order to create a better life for their family and so i to me the core and basis of what we uh have to focus on is what is the root cause of of these environmental challenges and for the most part i think they're social so i think we really need to focus on the social side of uh, sustainability first uh, because i think in many cases they're the root cause of why we have these environmental challenges in Hmm. the first place
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. You know, whether we're talking about climate change as well, like we seem to be in a developed countries here, you know, um, looking at alternative energy sources, which is great. But then you go to a country, you know, that is is still in its developing phases, like we've already gone through the, you know, industrial sort of space. And we're moving on from that. But there are other countries that are far behind. And, you know, they're quite happy to sort of burn coal and, and do what's required to sort of get to where we are right now. And, in some sense, you're like, you got to understand, like I totally understand their position. Like I get it. Like it makes total sense. So we have sure. sort of got to play this game right now of like, wh- where does the change come from? How do you create that change right now? Because it's such a huge undertaking and kind of overwhelming to sort of think about like, who's taking on this change right now?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think, and there are a lot of great organizations that are taking on this change, but I yeah. think what's more important is um, we have to put our, um, put ourselves in their shoes mm. and um too often we come in as a developed country and say well you need to do this because we yeah. want uh you know we want a certification or ranking yeah. logo on yeah. our, our you need to fish this way you need to do this you need to do that um and they don't but the reality is they don't care about what is what what the reasons why we want that mm-hmm. um we have to you know we have to figure out what is the way to influence them to change that will benefit them so if we said you know if you were able to fish this way in a more sustainable manner um, then you'd be able to uh, build a mosque or build a church for your town or Mm -hmm. your kids would be able to go to school or or you you can create uh, ongoing job for your family and that and a a lineage of of, uh, an extension for for future generations Mm. and if you can do that then that there's the impetus there to create uh impactful change uh but just coming in coming in um as a developed country and and kind of telling them what they should be doing is not the right solution in my opinion
0: yeah i know it's so tough and it's sort of um i can pull sort of threads of this conversation into the world that i've come from which is the coffee industry like you see it in the coffee Mm -hmm. growing regions around the world as well for sure you know there are organizations out there that you know certify um farmers as fair trade but they're really expensive certifications same with organic and, and you name it so there are pros and cons to it you know um and especially the specialty coffee industry as well. Like you've got commodity or commercial grade coffee and, you know, the care and attention isn't necessarily taken in the harvesting process. Whereas with specialty grade coffee, you know, you're looking for a really, really high quality product and a lot of it's handpicked. And, um, and you know, they're going through really meticulously picking these coffee cherries when they're at their yeah. most ripest, you know, and yeah. then they're taking a lot of care and attention through, um, through the processing um, time as well. But if you've got somebody that's barely surviving and just needs to get food on their table, they're just going to rip that crop out as soon as they can and get it to market just so they can get paid. So you can totally understand the dichotomy that's going on there. And, um, you know, for us to go over there and demand these things from these people, it's kind of just I totally if you meet the situation with compassion, you totally understand it from both perspectives. But, yeah, so it's interesting to see that it's happening in your world as well
1: yeah and, and you know it's an interesting thing like i said about pre-competitive uh, collaborations mm. we could learn a lot from other industries as yeah. well the seafood you know the the forestry industry mm. the egg industry in europe uh coffee industry mm. uh co- cocoa um you know th- there are already pre-competitive collaborations that have come mm. together with those groups and um and taking a, a page from their books um, would benefit us a lot. So we, we're not um, inventing it ourselves.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, in 2018 in Barcelona, you were awarded from SeaWeb, the seafood champion in the leadership category. That sounds to me like a huge accolade. And, you know, having recognition from not only your peers, but other organizations out there to be somebody that's making an impact in the industry and sort of leading the way. Yeah, and I, th- I mean, th- it,
1: it, it was... Go ahead.
0: No, no. My question was, can you give us a little bit of insight into that and the impact that it's had on the organizations that you've worked for as well?
1: To receive that it was overwhelming, quite candidly to receive it from my peers, the uh, other members of the industry, uh, NGOs from government bodies, and just to be recognized to that level, um, Mm. um, you know, was honestly it was overwhelming i was i was up on the stage and i was almost tearing up i was it was it was it was pretty moving uh mm-hmm. for me um yeah and it's an international award that really recognizes um uh, your contribution to what you've done to the industry as a whole um and 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 the reason i said um it was really an acknowledgement that all the things that i was doing before were the right things to do yeah. um um you know whether it's uh focus on uh, marine plastics uh or uh focus on uh overfishing or even creating uh i cr- we we created a not-for-profit um that actually contributed uh funds towards various uh, fishery improvement projects around the world mm-hmm. um so you know or or doing things like that um really it it just recognized for me all the um positive things that um that i i set out and we we created over time
0: have you always been the kind of guy that would actually get your hands dirty and get out there and you know um try and take on these big problems and try and solve them yourself or is this something that you have to work on
1: um i it's, I think it's something you have to work on, but mm. over, but I have always been, but I re- recognized, I don't know, I recognized fairly early on that, um, I was committed to making proactive change within our industry. Mm. And, you know, that I, I you know, I, I, I was involved in many, uh, initiatives in the early stages and i think i was just lucky or i had that uh foresight that these were going to be issues moving forward Yeah. and so because of that then you know i it's, we started to gain momentum and we started to see that you know yeah these what as i said whether it's uh you know our carbon footprint or uh microplastics in the ocean mm. or you know or um uh, being, you know, one of the first companies to be completely transparent and, and show where all their fish was caught and, and where it came from, um, you know, transparency and traceability or creating that NGO, as I said, all of these things, um, were, again, I I just super lucky that, um, was involved in them right from the start before the rest of the industry really grabbed onto them. Hmm. And, and, um, and, and because of that we you know we it just helped us push ourselves forward um more than others and and i be and again because of that we wanted to we wanted to set an example and show that show other companies what can be done mm-hmm. and it didn't necessarily cost any more money mm-hmm. maybe a lot, lot more time yeah but um it wasn't that we were burdened by extra costs to do it
0: yeah yeah it was something that was critical and something that you knew that needed to happen
1: yeah and a lead by example that that was the whole goal
0: yeah i guess you know anything that occurs or that somebody takes on, it never happens in a vacuum. So, you know, did you have somebody that mentored you or somebody that you looked up to in the industry that sort of helped guide you and sort of give you advice and direction and say, you know what, you've got the ability to tackle this, like you can do this. And then, you know, obviously, you weren't doing it alone. And you would have had a, a team of people around you to help you execute on your ideas. So I'd love to sort of touch on your on sure. leadership and what that means to you as well. But let's start with the, um, the mentor uh, role. Did you have somebody that you look up to?
1: I did. Um, I mean, I have there's a, a ton of mentors yeah. but um but definitely one gentleman that really stands out his name was howard johnson um not not from the hotel or from the motel chain right. um but howard um was really he he was a sounding block but he was also there to um tell me that i could do what i wanted to do um hmm. you know i would often look look to him for advice and he would turn around and say, say to me, guy, you don't need my advice. You're doing the right thing. Just continue to continue on that path. So he reassured me that we were doing, you know, what was needed to do and we were on the right path. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, he, by far, he, he was a standout for me. Um, from uh you know, from a team perspective, I was super lucky to have a, a board and an executive team at Albion that gave me the runway to mm-hmm. take off and and take the company, you know, farther down the sustainability road than other companies. Yeah. And so, um, had it not been for the president and all the other, you know, the sales managers and all the other people that supported the philosophy, um, then I wouldn't have been able to do what what needed to happen.
0: Mm. Like any good idea or like anything in life, you need to be able to sell it, right? Like selling an idea, selling something is really important. Is that like a skill that you learned like during your days as a salesman, like out there selling? Is this something that comes naturally to you as well? Or was it just something that you were so passionate about it just naturally rubbed off onto everybody else? And when you're up there doing your presentations and selling this idea to the board at Albion or whoever it was to, you know, get these initiatives underway, tell us a little bit about that like how did you actually go about sort of getting the ball rolling and you know executing on these ideas
1: well i i'm super passionate um so passion does play a role but mm. i think you're always selling <laughs> mm. i think your your, yeah. your, your your life is always whether you're selling yourself or you're selling a product or yeah. you, you know um or or an idea um i think you're always selling so mm-hmm. uh, w- w- whatever capacity you're you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I sell. I don't sell direct to um, to customers right now, but I feel like I'm always selling an idea or philosophy mm-hmm. to to our employees. Yeah. To you know, um, and I don't mean that in a cheesy way. I just think that that you're trying to influence change, and in that's selling.
0: Yeah, no you're absolutely right i um i did my master's in entrepreneurship and innovation kind of like an mba but a little different in that rather than learning how to work within an established organization uh, you're learning how to sort of create the organization or learning how to sort of develop a business idea through you know various methods of testing it was awesome but the one thing that the course lacked and there was zero zero input on was sales and it kind of blows me away now that i'm in sales i'm like this is kind of everything. Like, unless you know how to sell something, you're not even going to get off the ground. And I was really disappointed when I had that realization. And so, you know, to hear that you started your career early on in the sales um, side of the business was kind of exciting to me because I'm like, okay, well, maybe that's where you've been able to see some of your success. Like you've taken those tools that you learned and you've been able to sort of carry them through uh, with you um, across multiple different positions within these organizations.
1: Yeah, I I, I think one of the things that sales being a, a salesperson does is you it requires you to pick up on the nuances of people um yeah. and their their mannerism um their actions some of the things that they do uh whether it's they're looking at their watch or the way they their tone of their voice mm-hmm. and um and it, it's kind of like um playing chess it's like you know instead of knowing what the next move is it's trying to figure out what the move is two two moves later yeah um and i i and by so being able to pick up on the nuances of people their manners their tone of voice and and such i think is really critical um for you how you how you can be sex successful i Mm -hmm. think that's also one of the reasons that i was able to jump on board a lot of those sustainability initiatives at an er early time before they you know the rest of the industry had. Had, had taken them up because mm. I recognized early on what were um, what were real critical issues and what were, you know, issues that just maybe were tire kickers that you could put yeah. off on the side.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was a bit of fluff. Yeah. Um, is there anyone in um, either sales or negotiation, like any books out there that you've read that you'd recommend to anybody?
1: Um, no, you know, I'm, I, um, I spend a ton of my time on the internet and, um, and I, um, you know, uh, trying to educate myself uh, that way. Um, I don't read a lot of business books because yep. I tend to fall asleep as soon as I <laughs> open them up. Um, I,
0: I have that problem too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, that's the big challenge I have. I like to read when I'm on vacation, but yeah. it's typically not business books.
0: Okay, I've got a tip out there for anybody that's interested. So there's a guy called Chris Foss and he wrote a book called Never Split the Difference. Uh, Chris was a former FBI agent and he was a negotiator, hardcore negotiator. And his book is phenomenal. He's also got a masterclass on Masterclass Online uh, that I highly recommend. We actually dissected it here at Foodpack as a sales team. And cool. it's really great. It's not only on the art of negotiation, but on how to read body language and sort of how to influence a conversation. And once again, it's not in a cheesy or tacky way. It's just learning how to sort of be a, a human with and have another human interaction and understand how your body language influences somebody else. And it, it's a really great read. But yeah, yeah, like I said, if you fall asleep in front of a book, I recommend checking out the masterclass because it's worth its weight in gold. He's, he's very, very good at what he does.
1: Very cool. Yeah, I will Chris look it was. up for sure. Do Thank it.
0: You. Um, Now, let's sort of um, circle the conversation back to um, the food and hospitality and and, um, manufacturing industry, um, sort of the listeners that are tuning into the podcast today. So obviously with you at Organic Ocean right now, um, you're supplying the restaurant industry primarily, um, so B2B, and COVID impacted you greatly, especially (laughs) when a lot of the uh, restaurants shut down.
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, so you are correct. the organic ocean just a little bit of history organic ocean was founded by two fishermen who were essentially unhappy with their lot in life they uh started the company about 13 years ago they um and they were fishing sustainably so that was like with hook and line Mm -hmm. uh or with pots or crab trap uh, or uh, uh, prawn traps um and so using sustainable fishing methods not necessarily nets Etc. Um, and, and then they were treating their fish better. They were dressing their fish on board the boat. Uh, they were bleeding them, dressing them. And yet what they found is when they returned back to the to the packer or the processor, uh, their fish just got lumped in with everybody else's. Yep. And they got paid the exact same price as everybody else, especially those that weren't necessarily fishing uh, as sustainably or producing as a uh, higher quality product as they were. So they decided to go off on their own and started to sell direct to consumers down at the fishing docks uh, in, uh, in Vancouver, at, uh, down at False Creek. Um, but very quickly, um, a quite famous uh, chef called uh, Chef Robert Clark, who um, just recently uh, was awarded the Order of Canada, uh, for his contribution to, um, sustainable seafood, in, within the industry. Mm. Um, he was one of the founders of the ocean wise program, um, as well. Anyway, he, he found them and started buying their fish for his restaurant. And he told, you know, two chefs and they told two chefs and very quickly, they developed a following of, uh top chefs and celebrity type chefs across canada Mm -hmm. and then that expanded to uh to into the u.s james Beard chefs in the u.s and michelin star chefs in singapore and Mm -hmm. hong kong and other countries um and so that was the core of our business and um we you know we were doing some business in asia and by november of 2019 we were already starting to get a heads up that things were going sideways um but really in the course of two two days in in uh february uh we we lost 75 percent of our businesses all the restaurants shut down so we scrambled um and for us it was the focus was we still had fishermen out we we still had uh fish coming in mm-hmm. we had all our employees that uh i was worried about um and we so we decided to uh, create an online fish market in order to get uh, healthy protein to those that were homebound at the time. And originally, it was designed to be a um, to be a, a, a stopgap uh, in order to um, really just keep the company afloat yeah. and try try to keep our employees employed. You know, the, the farthest thing from our mind was to furlough or lay off people. Um, the, you know, the most important thing for me was how do we create, um, how, how do we maintain our, uh, our employee base and make sure that they're looked after and they get a fair wage during these difficult times. Yeah. So, um, so we created in a, in the course of two weeks, we created this online fish market started out, uh, just selling into the lower mainland and delivering with our own trucks. And then about a year ago, we expanded that across Canada, and mm-hmm. now we offer uh, the the same premier premium seafood that you would uh, that those same chefs would have purchased. Mm. We're now offering that um, to, um, to home to to consumers direct mm. to their home um and sustainable and recyclable compostable packaging uh which was really important for us we didn't want to send it you know in order to maintain the cold chain of the product and maintain the integrity of the product we had to figure out a way um that we could manage that supply chain and make sure that we could deliver it and maintain the you know uh the integrity of the product and it took us a while to figure that out for sure um but we were able to crack that nut and now a customer can actually order by one o'clock uh the day before and it'll be delivered to their doorstep in toronto for example or montreal uh the next morning
0: wow that's insane and were you able to do all of this in-house or did you have to get somebody in to assist or tell us a little bit about the mechanics of it all
1: um well the um we had we had a um, a part time web developer that was that worked with us on, under contract. Um, obviously, we didn't care too much about um, we we weren't focused too much on, about our website prior when it was B2B. Yeah. Um, so we he was in, integral in in uh, creating the online uh, store. What we mm-hmm. didn't re- realize that his full time job was actually as a um store Shopify uh expert and um, developer. Kind of and the perfect, So we yeah, yeah we, we really lucked out there. And so uh utilizing him uh really helped us uh, and then all the changes we continue to make he he's been integral in that um mm. the other a lot of the other stuff we did in-house and we were again i mentioned that you know i spent a lot of time on the internet we're learning as we're going mm-hmm. um you know marketing was really uh something that you know and uh, our focus on social media and paid advertising and all of these things but were mm-hmm. we we were we never had to do that before yeah. you know everything was word of mouth for us in fact our on our web our uh if you did a google search of fish in Vancouver or seafood companies in Vancouver. Uh, I think we came up on the sixth page on a Google search. So oh, um, you know, that doesn't work if you're selling direct to consumers. We need mm-hmm. to be in the number one spot at the on the front page.
0: Yeah, number one and, or number two at least. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And um so we you know and so we had to learn all i i personally had to learn all of that and you know how do we how do we get into that number one placement how, how do we do this and how do we do that so uh we engaged with some uh advertising agencies that have helped us uh, move our positioning um and they've done a good job of that um so but wherever possible we try to learn and do as much as we could in-house for mm-hmm. sure
0: that's awesome. So obviously, you know, with it being an exercise that you'd never undertaken before, I can imagine that it would have been a, a road that, you know, had a few weaves and bumps and so on in it. If you were to do it again from scratch, uh, I can imagine that you would do it a lot cheaper and you'd most likely do it a lot quicker. So if you were to sort of give advice to anybody out there that was sort of getting a uh, an e-commerce platform up and running right from the start, what advice would you give them?
1: well actually you know what i don't think we would have done it any cheaper in fact um if anything i think i would have probably spent a little bit more uh yeah Yeah. um i we did it uh really quite cheaply and i um and i would have engaged with agencies a lot sooner than Mm. what we did Mm -hmm. uh we tried to we tried to learn as we go and stumbled uh, along but i would have I, I think I would have engaged with uh, a marketing agency that could have helped us uh, get to a better spot a lot quicker than than we did. Right. Um, but, you know, the other thing was time management. I, you know, I'm e- even now, I still spend quite a bit of time um, on, on my computer, um, you know, my uh we talked about our kids and you know i I got two kids that um are are super active are involved in like girl guides and in in um, soccer and and uh skiing and everything else and so um so you know i come home i spend a couple after a day of work i come home spend a couple hours uh, with them, driving them around or getting them to wherever ever they need to be, uh, eating dinner. And then once they're in bed, I turn the computer back on and I'm, I'm working it as well. And so I, again, and so, uh, you know, I'm putting in at least 16 hour days and I would say that that's not healthy. I think, you know, um, you know, you have to put in the time, but mm-hmm. at the same time, you have to have this work-life balance and you have to, um, you know, um, you got to manage your own stress levels and, and, and and such. So from a mental health perspective, I would caution anybody that's thinking about doing that is, you know, I know that how important it is for your company to succeed, but um, you know, your, your health is just as important.
0: Yeah, it is. So apart from, you know, obviously knowing that you're doing 16 hour days and you're putting a lot of time and energy into it, what's it going to take for you to be able to pull those hours back and get back to a balanced life?
1: um you know being surround yourself with great great people that yep. can take on some of that load mm-hmm. um you know um be create a level of accountability so that it's not just about you doing it that they all understand what their roles are mm-hmm. and that you can leave it to them to do it yeah um you know i don't wanna too often i get involved i'm not a micromanager by any means but i do get involved in in everybody's you know jobs at at Mm. some point in time and sometimes (laughs) i need to recognize that i need to back off and and uh let them do what they they're good at doing
0: i hear like it's it's a fine line isn't it it's it's such a balance of you know having a good understanding of what everybody within the organization is doing and what they're capable of and you know sort of guiding them along the path to get to you know where you're headed and sort of painting a picture for them and i guess that's the leadership components you know selling that future idea and how to get there and then there's exactly like you said. Then there's micromanaging and getting in there and being a little bit too disruptive, and you know, almost diminishing the work that could be done. So, how do you sort of manage that? Like, do you keep your finger on the pulse and say, okay, this is what I want? You give a time frame and then expect everybody to execute on it and present it back to you, or what does that sort of look like?
1: Um, well, everybody, uh, I think everybody has an expectation of what I require um yep. so uh i rarely set timelines because they know that most of the most of my what i want is like was yesterday yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> um but if in the cases that you know i did that i i don't want them to disrupt all the other things that they're doing and yep. recognize um that they're busy as well you know i will give them a timeline through um by email or whatever and say this is not critical if i can mm. get it by next week that'd be great um um you know i i uh it it's it's hard uh, i i i what what i find is when i when i'm either given a heads up that i'm getting involved in something that i too too much or, or uh or um you know or you know partaking in stuff that i i should leave it up to them to do Mm um i typically back away right Mm -hmm. uh i mean but what i mean by that like i spend a lot of time working on the weekends yeah and so like for example last weekend i just decided okay i'm not going to check my emails i'm not going to do this i'm going to leave it up to them and you know every and and uh while you can coach and um mentor and and try to uh, give, um, uh, insight to people real time, you know, it, it's just as effective if you do it a couple days later as well. So it can wait, right.
0: That's awesome advice. Um, so we've talked about the past and the impact that COVID had on your business and, you know, the mechanics of how you managed to navigate your way through it. You know, none of us know what the future holds and sort of, that's just true in life in general. But how far out do you try and paint a picture for organic ocean? Like how far into the future are you driving the business and uh, what goals and what are you trying to achieve over the next period of time?
1: Um, well, uh, you know, we, we've we got a strategic vision five years from now. Five years, right. Um, yep. That that's really the you know, and if things happen faster, great. Um, you know, it's we're on a growth trajectory um, when i joined the organization uh i um there there were a lot of things that we had to change and tweak mm-hmm. um and but you know i feel like we've tackled a lot of those challenges and and hit, hit those hurdles now so now it's just a, a matter of uh growing our business um both uh b2b and and d 2 c so mm-hmm. um you know that that's but for me it's a it the it's a, a five year growth trajectory
0: Right. Um, There was one other question that I wanted to ask you. So at Organic Ocean, you've got the certifications of being a B Corp and a 1% for the planet member. I'm familiar with those um, organizations because Salt Spring Coffee was also a B Corp and 1%. And, you know, it's great and it brings a lot of value to your business, but they're also expensive to partake in. Uh, But, you know, if you see the value, they also bring a lot of value to your business that you otherwise wouldn't have. So it's, it's a it's a balance. But for a small business owner that's out there or a startup business owner that has aspirations around sustainability and giving back, for example, transparency in their supply chain, just so that they can give their consumer transparency and, you know, continue that conversation, but they're not quite at a point uh, where they're ready to engage with a B Corp, for example, what would you suggest that they do and, and how do you suggest they go about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, you don't need to be a B Corp to, to do any of that stuff. I mean... Mm-hmm what b corp does is through your annual audits it holds you accountable for yeah. all those statements and uh, actions that you said you're doing um so you know if you don't need to invest in 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 that as long as you're committed to actually doing and and following through and then um auditing yourself uh, mm-hmm. on an annual basis or you know on a biannual basis on uh on those actions i think too often, we um, we focus on our CSR, our sustainability uh, commitments, because we think it's good for business and it's what the public wants. Or yeah. But the reality is you have to do it because you believe in it and it's in your heart. Hmm. Um, you, you can't do it just because you want to influence others to me that's you know the basis of why uh there are companies that greenwash right Mm -hmm. it's it's really um you you need to really believe in what you're doing and be and um and believe in what you're doing and the reasons behind why you do what you do Mm -hmm. And i think that's the core to to that it's you can't do it just because you think it's going to get you more customers or it's you know or um you want to get younger employees that uh, are are committed to those kind of things you have to do it because you actually believe it yourself
0: because it's a core part of the dna of the organization yeah yeah now um i guess the actual culture of the organization needs to you know walk in step with that if that's the case so how do you impart that culture within the organization as well
1: um well you i mean you live it every day Mm. and so you know it's whether it's your assessment of the packaging that you use or um you know or the source of the products you procure um it's actually creating a policy you know around that and really writing out and defining what that policy is Mm -hmm. um we we actually at organic Ocean took it a step further and looked at the um united nations uh FAO's sustainability goals and then mm-hmm. how we as an organization can help uh, our country and uh, create change uh, within the world by you know what what are the things that we can contribute to on those sustainability goals. So it's just it's, I just use that as an example that I mean we, we've even taken it one step further.
0: Yeah. And I saw that on your website as well. And for anybody out there that does want to check out the organic ocean website, I've got the link in the show notes. So just scroll down to the bottom and click on there. And yeah, there's a lot of information on your website, which was great. And I found it really easy to read and digest. So yeah, definitely. Thank you for all of that content. Um, Uh, One more question for you. If we could fast forward a year from now, and you could say to me that you'd had your best year ever, what is it exactly that you would have accomplished?
1: Um, getting healthy protein into more into the hands of more people Mm -hmm. um you know i the reason i'm in this industry is because i believe in this industry i Mm -hmm. believe that seafood is the healthiest protein on the planet i think it has the ability to um solve a lot of the issues that we have it has the ability to uh stop uh to to um um Contributed against heart disease, obesity, uh, malnutrition. Uh, th- there are so many reasons that we should be focused on uh, it. You know, typically has a lower carbon footprint than terrestrial proteins. Um, Yeah, and I just I believe in it strongly, and I think that the more that we can showcase seafood or get seafood into the hands of consumers, the better we're going to be uh, as a country. I also think it helps with food security and and, uh, food sovereignty, so you know people can people consume uh, Canadian. uh, um seafood or your own country's seafood rather than bringing in imports from other parts of the world Mm -hmm. i think is critical and and effective so really to me it's getting our where i'm i'm biased here but our (laughs) seafood into the hands of consumers across the country more seafood into the hands of consumers across country um would make me extremely happy
0: that's fantastic what a great way to finish the episode thank you very much for your time i appreciate it
1: Thank you, Hayden. Thanks for having me on.
0: That's all right. I feel like we could have spoken for another hour.
1: (laughs) We (laughs) probably could. (laughs)
0: Awesome, mate. Well, yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Take care. Bye.
1: No problem. You too.
0: Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions from today's episode or would like to know more about what I can do to help you achieve your packaging vision, you can reach me directly at hayden at heavy You could DM me on Instagram at the pack heavy podcast, or we could also connect on LinkedIn and start a conversation there. I'll see you next week.